Mark 14, 12 through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, he went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the scriptures, the inspired word of God that points us to the incarnate word of God. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your body, your blood, the bread, the wine. Lord, thank you for these pictures, these reminders of the beautiful thing that you've done for those who are undeserving. God, we come into this place by grace. Lord, we live by grace. We ask that your grace, Lord, would manifest your glory in this place as we come into contact with the risen Lord through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are all on a journey. We're all going somewhere. And if you want to know where you're going, you first have to know where you are. If you do not plot your course, whether in life or career or relationship or even a hike, if you do not start your course from where you are currently, then it's not your path it's somebody else's. If there's a desired outcome in life, if there's a desired outcome in a project, if there's a desired outcome, a, a destination, you have to plan your route from your current position. This is why I like mall directories. I am directionally challenged. And so the mall directory is a beautiful thing when you're surrounded by people and a bunch of storefronts and you look at the map and you got that big dot that says, you are here. 
and I can know I am here. That's where I am, and I can find what I'm looking for, which is most likely the Wetzel's pretzels because they're delicious. And I know exactly where it is. You know, all those mall stores, you got like Claire's and Wetzel pretzels, and there's always a Lids, and uh, what, you know, there's a Pack Sun, you know, and you can find the store that you're looking for. Because in life, it's too easy to lose our way. It's incredibly easy to lose our way in life. Our hearts are prone to wander. We often set out with intention and resolution. We turn to the right, to the left. We find ourselves off track. Now, realistically, some of you are here today feeling lost. Or if you're here and you're not feeling lost now, you know what that experience has been like, or you know that at some point you may feel lost. You may feel off track. And so what Jesus gives us in our text today is a compass. He gives us the way to find true north so that we can navigate ourselves back to where he wants us. We can navigate the difficult path ahead. He gives us a kingdom directory to continually remind us whatever came before and whatever comes after. Right now, you are here so that we can find our way again. And what the disciples received on this night in this text is what every believer throughout the history of the church has needed. And it's what you need today. We need to come to the Lord's table together and experience a grace that recalibrates our hearts, that sets us back on the trajectory, that points us back in the right direction. And so in our text, Jesus prepares his disciples for what's about to happen. See, thus far, navigating life has been relatively easy for the disciples. They just follow Jesus. Where Jesus goes, they they go. What Jesus says to do, they do. But Jesus is about to be taken from them. And they would need to know how to live. They would need to know what to do. They would need to know how to survive as his disciples even after he leaves them. And they would get it wrong. They would get it very wrong. Judas is about to betray him. All of them are going to fall away. And before the end of that very night, Peter himself will deny him three times. They're going to get it wrong. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know we get it wrong. You got it wrong this last week, you're going to get it wrong again. We get it wrong. And none of it catches Jesus by surprise. He's not shocked by any of it. From the logistical details of where they're going to eat the Passover meal, To Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. Because even though he will be betrayed by one of his own, even though he's going to be killed, Jesus is presiding over it all. The scriptures say, Jesus Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to take it back up again. None of this is going to catch Jesus by surprise. He presides over it all. It was the plan since before the world was made. And on this night, 
This night that Jesus was betrayed, he reclined at the table with his disciples and they celebrated together the Passover. The last Passover that Jesus would celebrate in his life. And we need to understand this because the Passover is the context within which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And it's from this context that we need to understand what the Lord's Supper is and what it means. Now, depending on your theological background and your church tradition, you might have heard this called a variety of different things, either communion or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist. Some churches observe it with wine, some with juice, some drink from a cup, some dip the bread into the cup. Maybe you're here and you have no previous understanding of the Lord's Supper at all, of the bread and the cup at all. And whatever your tradition is, whatever your tradition or or lack of tradition is, what we celebrate as a church each week in the bread and the cup is what Jesus instituted in our text, in this scene, on this night with his disciples. And so the Lord's Supper, though merely bread and wine, it is a retelling of a story. This is what the Passover meal was all about. The Passover meal retold the story of God's salvation. See, God's people were once slaves in Egypt. But God judged the Egyptians by bringing upon them ten plagues, the last of which took the lives of every firstborn son in Egypt, whether flocks or herds, all the way to Pharaoh's own son. And on the night of that tenth plague, God commanded his people to sacrifice a lamb and to put the blood on the doorposts of their house. And as death passed over the city, it would see the blood on the door and pass over the Israelites' houses, and they were saved. And after the tenth plague, Pharaoh then commanded the Israelites, he said, get out. Before it was, I will not let you go. I will not let you go. And then after that, he just says, leave. He would change his mind and he would pursue them. And God once again would deliver them through the Red Sea and into freedom. And so every year they celebrated the Passover with a meal. God commanded them to celebrate with a meal. And the meal was a kind of, of theater where families retold. They even, they even reenacted certain parts of the story using elements from the meal, using the food itself to retell the story of God's saving work, delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And in this way, every generation, every man, woman, and child experienced their own deliverance. They were to experience their own being led into freedom from captivity when they celebrated as a family every year. But the Passover, we learn in our story, ultimately pointed to a day when God's people would be rescued from a different enemy, from a greater enemy. See, when Jesus sits down with his disciples, Egypt is not the enemy. And though some of the religious leaders would like to believe this, not even Rome was the enemy. The exodus from Egypt, though a beautiful moment in Israel's history, could never undo the evil and oppression from the true enemy, the enemy of sin and Satan and death. In fact, Israel would go on to commit the same kind of atrocities that Egypt committed. See, if we read the Bible and think that God's people are the, the hero of the story, 
then we get really confused when the hero of the story is doing the exact same things as the enemy in the story. And that's the whole point of the, the Old Testament, the Scriptures, is to show that though God's people keep getting it wrong, God is always right. And God is always good. And God is always redeeming. And He's always saving. And he's always using their circumstances to bring about His glory. And so even when Israel looks like, look, Solomon looks like Pharaoh when his exploits are described. He marries Pharaoh's daughter and imports horses and chariots from Egypt and he oppresses slaves and has them build his cities for him. Make no mistake, Solomon is depicted as Pharaoh. And yet God continues to work about salvation. It's not about delivering a people from a people. It's about delivering people from the sin that is within, that has infiltrated even God's own people. Sin shows no partiality, has no allegiance to nation or party. And so every people and culture needs a rescuing. We need a deliverance. This is the enemy that Jesus came to deliver us from. This new exodus that Jesus leads is a mission to rescue us from hell. But sin is not just this external threat, right? It's internal. It exists within all of us, including Jesus' own disciples. One of the 12 would betray him. One of the 12, this is how how deep and how dark the betrayal is. It was someone that he was even eating with. And in this culture, table fellowship, To sit at table with one another, to share a meal with someone, was to share life with them. Someone celebrating a meal, specifically the Passover, these people at their table were the people they trusted and loved the most, and one of them would betray him. And Jesus isn't even going to stop it. All of it's going to happen in accordance with what is written about him, in accordance with the scriptures. He will die, but his death will bring about not only a fulfillment of the scriptures, but will fulfill the Passover celebration. That very meal that they were eating, remembering that moment in their past, what Jesus was about to do would be an even greater deliverance and require an even greater celebration. And so just as the Passover meal retold the story of God's saving work in Israel's past, the Lord's Supper retells the story of God's saving work in Jesus. Jesus reinterprets the elements of that Passover meal. He uses the food on the plate. He uses the elements on the table to tell of something greater that he is going to do. The bread and the wine point to something so much greater. Though still representing what they always have represented, Jesus uses them to point to what he's going to do. The bread represents his body, which would soon be nailed to the cross. The wine represents his blood, which would soon be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And if it is Jesus' blood, that is being poured out, then Jesus standing at the table represents a new and greater Passover lamb by whose blood on the doorposts the Israelites were passed over and the wrath of God passed over them. But now it is the blood of Jesus that is poured out for his people that brings about salvation. And so this is the beauty of symbolism. 
right? This is the beauty of symbols, images, and ideas that are packed with meaning. And so Jesus chooses two very ordinary, very everyday items from the Passover meal to fill it with meaning. He doesn't empty it of its previous meaning. He just adds new meaning to it and fills it with greater meaning. To give you an example of this, I have a friend whose daughter was born on his birthday. And the birth of his daughter didn't empty that day of significance or replace that day's previous significance, but filled it with so much more meaning, so much more beauty. In fact, when my friend celebrates his birthday, it's barely his birthday at all. He gladly takes a back seat and makes the event all about his little girl. In a similar way, I don't want us to think that what Jesus does here replaces the Passover, but he fills the symbols of the bread and the wine with so much more meaning than they could possibly contain before that the disciples would never for the rest of their lives be able to eat and drink without remembering him and without remembering what he accomplished. And I think that's Jesus' desire for us. Not just on Sundays when we come to the bread and the cup, but something as mundane as bread and wine or bread and juice to be so filled with meaning that we can't help but feed ourselves and think about our Savior. That it would be constantly a rhythm throughout our days, throughout our lives, where we would remember that if it wasn't for this food, I wouldn't survive. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I couldn't be saved. We're constantly reminded by these symbols. In this way, the Lord's Supper that we make available every Sunday, the bread and the cup are just a reminder of a greater salvation, that your sin is forgiven, that God's wrath against sin has passed over you, and the Passover lamb, as it died instead of the people, that Jesus has received the full wrath of God for sin in himself as he died instead of you. This is a beautiful celebration. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful salvation. And because the bread and the cup are reinterpreted to represent God's work of salvation in Jesus, the Lord's Supper is not only retelling the story of salvation, but it provides a reinterpretation of your story. It allows you to reinterpret your story in light of the cross. See, every single one of us has a story. Your life and and the way that you live, it tells that story. You can trace today on back and the decisions that you have made on back to previous decisions and previous actions and previous experiences that you have encountered. But we can't help but operate out of where we've been. We talked about if you want to know how to, how to get where you're going, you need to know where you are. But the only way to understand where you are is to understand where you've been. And we can't help but operate out of our experiences, out of the brokenness and pain and, and even joys of our experiences. They inform who we are. Even those who can rise above their circumstances will still often find that their ambition is rooted deeply in a reaction against their past, still tying them to their past, still tying them to their experiences. You might even say that we're captive to them. 
become our own Pharaoh, our own taskmasters, forcing ourselves to build a life that will help us to escape the pain. And whatever your, your pain is associated with, whatever, whatever hurt has been caused by you or by others, we cannot help but be defined by it. That's why the, the, uh, we talk about what, what do you call someone who murders someone? They're a murderer. That's who they are. Someone that lies is a liar. Someone that steals is a thief. That's who they are. We can't help but be defined by the things that we've done. It makes us who we are, whether good or bad. Whether the good things in our life define who we are, the bad things in our life define who we are. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and through faith in him, your sin is no longer a source of your identity. Your sin is no longer the source of your identity. Your sin no longer defines you in the same way that the Israelites were no longer slaves in Egypt because of God's saving work. You through faith in Jesus, are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer what you've done. That's not who you are through faith. You are not the things that you have done. Whatever you're ashamed of, whatever you're tempted to believe about yourself because of your failures, these things do not define you. That is not who you are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the old has passed away. The new has come. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by the things that you have done. You are a new creation. And this is true of our sins and failures as well as our successes and accomplishments. You are not the goals that you have achieved. You are not the victories that you have experienced. You are more than the boxes that you have checked, the degrees that you have acquired. You are more than the family you have created. You are more than the things that you have done, whether those things are seen as negative or those things are seen as positive. They do not define you the world will consistently try to define you by what you have done. And if you let them define you by your successes, if you let the world define you by the things that you are proud of, then you have given them the tools to define you by the things that you're not proud of. If you let the world give you an identity, if you let your your, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your teachers, if you let anybody give you an identity that you are proud of, then you give them the power to give you an identity that you are not proud of. And no one should have that power because you have a greater value than what you have done. You have a greater value than what has been done to you. You have a greater value because of what Jesus has done for you. Because of the sacrifice of Christ that brought about this new exodus from sin, you are not what you have been, you are not what you have done. That's not who you are. Nor are you defined by what has been done to you. That's the other thing the world wants to do wants to give you an identity based on what has happened 
to you, based on what others have done to you. You are not what has been done to you. The power uh, of sin in our lives isn't only internal. It does come upon us by an external sources. It's it's imposed upon us by others. Wounds that are inflicted by others create the same feelings and failures of insufficiency as our own mistakes. Sometimes when you think about your life and you think about the things that, that bring you the most shame, it's not the things that you've done. It's the things that others have done or the things that they haven't done that they should have done. And so these too can make us feel like we're damaged goods, unable to be useful to God, unable to be loved, unable to contribute. But through faith, you have been redeemed. You have been washed. You have been healed. You are not what others have done to you. Sin committed by you or against you is no longer what defines you. Rather, your sin is now only the context for your redemption. Your sin is not the source of your identity. It is only the context for your redemption. Instead of it defining your story, It's only the setting within which Jesus can be seen as the hero. See, our sin, when we are in Christ, our sin is like the scrolling introduction to Star Wars. It it doesn't even deserve airtime. It's just words on a screen. Do you ever realize that without those words on that screen, A New Hope doesn't make sense? The movie doesn't make sense. And so our sin is just like an introduction. See, sometimes we're so ashamed of our sin or we're so ashamed of what's been done to us that we try to cover it up. We try to hide it from others. And then we try to tell those other people about Jesus and they don't understand what we're saying because we haven't given them the whole story. We become so ashamed of our past that we hide it away and we actually hide away the context for which they are able to see Jesus in our lives. Imagine the Lord of the Rings without the ring. That's what we do. I have no ring. I have no precious. And why are you going to Mordor, foolish person? doesn't make sense. We can't hide from them the context within which they can actually see Jesus' beauty, Jesus' power, Jesus' grace that redeems us from the inside out, washes us, cleanses us, empowers us, and gives us a beautiful future and a hope. Think of the biblical heroes from the Old Testament. Heroes, right? You know those stories. Often there's things about them that we should seek to emulate, their their courage and their faith, but most often they are incredibly tragic moral failures. All of them, just like you. (laughs) Me. They're moral failures. Yeah, David defeated Goliath, but he had an affair with Bathsheba, killed her husband, and was a terrible father. Solomon was the wisest man in all the earth, but he was too busy chasing women to pursue God. Moses was a coward and a murderer. We forget that part about Moses. He killed a dude and then ran away from it. 
Aaron made the golden calf. Moses, I don't know what happened. They gave me this gold. I threw it in the fire and now came this calf. Joshua didn't feel the job, finish the job. The judges, don't even get me started, most of them are horrific people with massive character flaws. But the reason their lives are recorded in Scripture is not so that you would seek to be like them, but so that we would see how God enters into the context of human sin and human failure and uses it to put His grace on display. Likewise, you are not defined by your sin. Your story is not defined by your sin, but it is the context within which God can put His grace on display. Some of you are hiding. Some of you are covering up the things that you've experienced. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to think about it. And you are eliminating from your testimony, when you share with others what God has done in your life, you're eliminating the context within which they can actually see the light of the gospel shine bright on the black backdrop of sin. We are a black backdrop that Jesus can be seen We're like the the, the box of an engagement ring, the black velvet by which we see the beauty of the, the gleaming diamond of the gospel. We're not to make our lives look awesome so that people will think Jesus is awesome. We're to make people know that we are as depraved as we are so they will know how beautiful Jesus is. We all want to be the hero we're all the damsel in distress, all of us. But Jesus has slayed the dragon. He took our place in death so that we could have life in his name. This is what the bread and the cup represent every Sunday. Do you know what you're eating? Do you know what you're drinking? Do you know what it means? Do you know what it represents? Eating the bread and drinking the cup puts each of us around this table. As the disciples reclined at the table with Jesus, every time we celebrate it 2,000 years later, it puts us instantly around the Lord's table with Jesus. And though sin manifests itself among us, we remember the story of salvation. And so our communion is a rhythm of grace to recalibrate our hearts. What we do at the Lord's table, what we do at the bread and the cup, it's a rhythm of grace that recalibrates our hearts. No matter what is past or future, church, no matter what you came from this week, whatever failure you've experienced this week, whatever shame you've encountered again this week, that I did it again. I said that I wouldn't and I did. Whatever wounds were reopened this week, whatever relationships have reminded you again this week that you're not there yet, you are not perfected yet, that you are are not perfect yet, whatever you came from this week, chances are it's not going to be the last time. There will be something else that we'll experience in the future. But 
whatever you came from this week, whatever lies ahead in your future, the Lord's Supper reorients us to Christ. The gospel, which is told through the simple elements of bread and the cup, it reorients us to Christ. It reminds us like that mall directory that right now you're here. Right now. Whatever you came from, whatever you go into, right now, you're here. Right now, you're at the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross is where the blood of Christ was poured out for the forgiveness of sins and your sin was washed away. At the cross is where by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. It's at the foot of the cross where you can experience healing. You can experience restoration. You can experience that, 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 that balm that, that, that covers our wounds and lets us heal no matter what is behind or what is ahead. The cross gives you a fresh start. By God's grace, you have a new beginning. You, have, you are a new creation. Whether you have trusted in Jesus in the past or whether you have yet to trust him yet. This is the invitation to you to come to the foot of the cross, to come to the body of Christ broken for you, to come to the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and experience that cleansing, to remember the cleansing that you've already received in what Christ has done. The Lord's Supper reorients us to Christ by bringing us back to the foot of the cross, but it reorients us to Christ by bringing us to the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, we have fellowship with God because the sin that separated you is forgiven and you're brought back into a relationship with Him. He's invited you today, not just into a building. These are just walls and a roof. He invites you more than into a building. He invites you into a relationship with Himself. He invites you into an intimate friendship with Himself. At the Lord's table, we have fellowship with God, but we have fellowship also with one another. Jesus sat down with all of his disciples, and they all drank from the same cup. Because we've come to the Lord's table together, we have communion with one another as well, because the work of Jesus puts us into right relationship with God, but it puts us into right relationship with one another. Imagine the disciples, the first time they ate together after Jesus died and was raised again and they realized what all this meant. Imagine sitting around that table knowing that they all had fallen away. Knowing that Peter had denied him three times. They could sit around that table and look one another in the eye and say, I know what you did. The body of Christ, take and eat. The blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Likewise, you guys can look around the room. Look around the room, and there's opportunities to say, I know what you did. Look around town, Christians at other churches. Each and every, I know what you did, and they can say the same about you. body of Christ broken for you. 
the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. We are all here by grace. The gospel is the great equalizer. We are all here by grace and we are all waiting for salvation to be complete. See, the Lord's Supper reorients us to Christ by bringing us back to the foot of the cross. It reorients us to Christ by bringing bringing us back to the Lord's table. It reorients us to one another as being redeemed by grace. But the Lord's Supper also reminds us that together we await for the coming kingdom of God. See, the bread and the cup is only a foretaste. It's small. It's not enough to even satisfy your hunger. It's just a foretaste of the messianic banquet in the kingdom of God, a small taste of the eternal blessing and delicacies of the new creation. When Jesus returns, it will no longer be us gathering around a piece of bread and a tiny cup. It's going to be us gathering around the Lord and Savior himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will be in the presence of Jesus feasting for eternity. The bread and the cup is just a picture of what we're waiting for, what we're longing for, what we're praying for. Come, Lord Jesus. And so if you believe the gospel, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you can come to the bread and the cup knowing your sin. See, sometimes we avoid coming to communion because we're aware of our sin. When our sin should be the very thing that drives us to the cup, to the bread. We discern our past. We discern our failure. And then we hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and eat. But for those who have not trusted in Jesus, Scripture does provide a stern warning for anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup who has no intention on following Jesus. See, don't come here and think that the bread and the juice are going to save you. The bread and the juice don't save you. The bread and the juice point you to the one that saved you. They point you to the fact that sin requires death, that sin deserves death, and that Christ died for that sin. So then to eat and drink apart from a willingness to follow Jesus and celebrate him in dying for that, that sin, we scorn his sacrifice. We mock what he's done. And scripture says that we eat and drink to our own condemnation. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I am so thankful that you're here. Honestly, God bless you for coming here. God bless you for walking into a place that you didn't, you didn't know if you'd be received here. You had no clue if the people in the room would recognize you from town and go, what in the world are they doing here? Or maybe you avoid coming because you know you're going to see people that you've seen from around town and going, what in the world are they doing here claiming to be a Christian? I know what they've done. Yeah, you do. And they know what you've done. Both of you are invited to the same thing. By faith in Jesus, you are invited into salvation and you are invited to partake in the bread and the cup if you've put your trust in Jesus. We are all here by grace. We're all here by grace. None of us deserve to be here. And so through faith, we eat and drink in celebration of life. I want to close with a story. 
one of the most beautiful moments of my life. A few months after uh, my dad gave his life to Jesus, we were talking about the Lord's Supper, talking about the bread and the cup. My dad was raised Catholic and was baptized in his first Holy Communion. And I didn't realize this uh, until this, this conversation. He told me, I have not taken communion since I was eight years old. I think it was actually his first Holy Communion. It was the first and the last time he ever took communion. And he said, because I always felt unworthy. And now I realize that I am unworthy. And he still offers it to me. All of us are here by grace. We are not worthy of the body of Christ. We are not worthy of the blood of Christ. And he gave it to us anyway. And so as we close and as we come to the bread and the cup, don't come to it weighed down by sin. Be honest about your sin. Be honest about your brokenness. But don't come today weighed down by sin, weighed down by shame. Don't come with your head hung low. We come to a feast in honor of the King who gave his life for us. We don't come because we deserve it. We come because he delights in giving it to us. We come not in performance because we're a good Christian. We come in remembrance. We remember the bread, Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. We remember the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And today you can do so with joy. Whatever you came from and whatever you go into today, you can come and celebrate the bread and the cup, if you've trusted in Jesus, you can come and celebrate with joy because it's by grace that you are here. And it's by grace that you've been redeemed. And it is by grace that you live. And you will experience sin and failure. You will experience a wayward heart. You'll experience turning to the right or turning to the left. You'll experience losing your way. And when you do, it is by grace that you are invited back week in and week out to remember Christ's body broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. You can remember grace. You can receive grace grace. You can experience healing. And you can celebrate together with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are all here by grace, experiencing the same thing. We do it together in communion with God and communion with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the cross. God, thank you for this picture that you've given us Lord, the bread and the cup that reminds us the simplest, most beautiful picture, Lord, a, a sermon in itself, the work of Christ on the cross, the bread and the cup that reminds us that by grace, we are here in your presence. By grace, we're at the foot of the cross. By grace, you invite us to your table you invite us into a beautiful future, Lord. 
And so, God, as we close, as we worship, as we sing, as we pray, as we ask for prayer, as we come to the carpets and get on our faces, Lord, may we all come to your altar today. May we all receive of the bread and the cup today, remembering your grace, remembering your mercy, and celebrating, God, that by your work, we are saved. God, stir us up with joy to respond to your work in this time. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.